You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Psychedelia. Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to the program for the final live Sunday of the year that we'll, we will be broadcasting. We'll have a bit of a mishmash of uh, special uh, bits and bobs for you next week and then over summer we're taking a little bit of a break. Um, sitting across from me, Ash Blackwell. Ash, how are you doing? Fantastic. I, I rode in today. i uh, been meaning to dust the cobwebs off the bike and get exercising to, again and um, what a beautiful day for it. I know, it's a bit, a bit better than riding on the 44 <laughs> degrees uh, haze day. Um, yeah, that's not, not quite as good. And I'm, I'm seeing uh, uh, also across from me, uh, Greg Denham, um, who is uh, very pleased with Ash's riding because, Greg, you're an avid cyclist. Uh, I am. I, 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 it's not just that. I, I actually bought my bike off of Greg. So yeah, I well, think that's why he was and, giving me a funny look. That's right. I was, I was a bit concerned that he was uh, dusting off the cobweb. So, um, but look, you know, I know what it's like. Uh, they do tend to gather very quickly on bikes. But, now, uh, aren't you, uh, are you preparing for, was there a big one you're doing soon, a big ride that you're doing soon? Is that next year or am I getting... I, uh, just... I try and do two or three a year. So I do the Murray to Moyne, which comes up in April, which is a big ride from usually from Echuca to Port Ferry. So that's that's a big that's ride. That's a fair ride. Yep, yep. Yeah. So we do that in stages, which is a fundraiser for health services. And I've done a couple of others during the year, which um, always gives you a bit of an incentive to sort of stay on the bike and yeah. and keep pedalling. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I rode for an hour and a half this morning around Williamstown, so it was a bit windy. What, but what time were you up as well? Oh, it was about 10 past 6 and yep. got back this about 7.30. This man gets up at 6am to go for an hour and a half ride. Amazing. <laughs> I wish I could. I wish I had the will to be able to do it. It must be like once you, once you start though, you probably have, it's probably really enjoyable because yeah. I know once I start and get over that little hump of like, it's actually really nice. Yeah. Look, once you're on the bike and you know, you feel the, the wind in your face and uh this time of um, year, it's actually quite good to ride because it's getting like on the roads. It's um, there's less traffic, there's less cars around. So, and Sunday mornings is always good because, you know, the only other people around are cyclists. So, yeah, it, it is. It's really enjoyable, and um, it's also uh, I think a fact that if you get to my age and you stop cycling, then you probably won't take it up again. So, <laughs> yeah, you've got to keep point. going. Got yeah. to keep going with it. Yeah, so keep the momentum. If you don't use it, you lose it. Which yeah. I'm kind of getting to understand. So. Yeah. Um, Get, I'm, I'm a little bit off that still, maybe. I've got a few more years. <laughs> this is in Psychedelia, and on the program this afternoon... Oh, sorry, if you if you were looking for Freedom of Species, by the way, uh, you wouldn't have heard them just then, because they are on a break as well. Um, summer programming is well underway, under sway at 3CR, um, with some different shows uh, getting um, a little bit of broadcast time. This is uh, people that have been doing work with other shows over the year that are maybe looking to, um, uh, looking to uh, get their own show together. Um, or people that are well, want to try something a little bit different during summer. Um, so keep tuned, 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and check out the website, 3, uh, 3cr.org.au, for more information on what's going on over summer. Um, so today on the program, we're going to be doing a little bit of a wrap of uh, what's been going on this year with a bit of special focus to the beginning of festival season, because uh, there have been a, a few issues that have come up 
uh, so far. So uh, we have Greg with us and we'll be talking a little bit more um, about... So Greg's from Law Enforcement Action Partnership. We should probably uh, introduce that. So Law Enforcement Enforcement Action um, Partnership, you're a former police officer and you've uh, spent decades working in alcohol and other drug policy spaces and uh, and also in, in care uh, direct care roles as well. So pretty extensive experience on sort of both sides of this... Uh, Debate. Yep. If you want to say the police is like, yeah, maybe both sides isn't right, but it's one side and another uh, with quite off, uh, often conflicting perspectives. Yeah, look, that's right. And I have um, been fortunate to see the drug issue from various angles over the years. And uh, yeah, I guess I form my own opinion, but not just uh, confined to me. There's others in, in the world um, who are involved with LEAP, both in the US and Canada and the UK and Europe now, who are former police officers who are saying, you know, what we're doing um, isn't working, it hasn't worked, and uh, if we continue to do the same thing, like hitting a head against the wall and expecting a different um, result, then, you know, it's only going to lead to more, um, you know, basically loss of life, but also, you know, the range of issues which we see in terms of incarceration and uh, the amount of resources that we spend on policing and the criminal justice system, the prison system. So, you know, we, we know there's a, a list a mile long of negative outcomes from uh, the war on drugs and drug prohibition. And so a number of police, quite a number of police throughout the world are now saying we've got to change. We've just got to do something different. So, so we're going to dive into that um, in just a little bit. Uh, and also this week, uh, maybe we can touch on the fact that uh, there are some pretty high-powered looking new weapons. And I know all the, all the gun uh, fans out there are like, it's not high-powered, just because it's black and scary. Like, yeah. there, is a, there is a point uh, to the presentation of, uh, of people who are representing institutions like police. Uh, and that, that first interaction, first, um, first impressions do count. And that first uh, interaction can start to define the relationship and it's kind of harder to make a relationship with somebody who is uh, wearing quite dark clothes, covered in utility belts with a big gun in front of them. It's, um, yeah, Yeah, I, I saw it and I thought, gee, you know what, this looks like that um, statement by the New South Wales Commissioner Mick Fuller that, you know, we need to strike a bit of fear into the community. You know, we need, we need some fear. And when I looked at those police with those high-powered... Um, I think they were semi-automatic. I don't know much They're about AR-15s. guns. <clears throat> right. They're AR-15s, which um, for anyone who's been following the United States and school shootings and some of the shootings there, AR-15s are a uh, high-powered semi-automatic rifle. It was the rifle used by the uh, New Zealand shooter, I believe. Right. So I guess that's what they're saying. They're saying, well, we need to prepare for an event like that, that there might be someone at some stage who's got a, um, a very high-powered automatic um, gun which will kill a lot of people so we need to arm our police officers but I just I just question the need for that uh, you know we we know in many parts of the world particularly in Europe that um, police um, have special units that they send to those types of um, events and uh, they um, yeah they, they can deal with them fairly quickly I, I wonder if we do need to have 300 Police armed um, yeah, in the three hundred. There's some. Um, there will be a special uh, unit, and it's unclear which unit it will be. But um, one report that I was reading um, was that it will be the the, the uh, unit that responds to protests and things like that, which uh, was slightly concerning. But yeah. I'm, I haven't well, read enough into that to, to be sure. And four regional. Well, units things have as changed well. because I know when I was a serving officer in the city, uh, one of the rules that we had was that you never take a firearm to a demonstration. Mm. Or protests. That was one of the number one rules we had. Well, that's, that's certainly changed, changed. Yeah, it's changed a lot. So uh, 
Now, whether that's that's um, because of increased uh, concerns uh, around events where firearms might be used, I'm not sure. I, I don't think we live in a more violent society today. We have incidents from time to time, but overall, I actually think we live in a safer society today than we've ever yeah, done. I, th- I think um, you're right, and I think, but then, then that's juxtaposed by a moral panic that's constantly at us. That, that there's a law and order issue in Victoria that we need to get on top of things. Even though you look at the stats, and okay, there are some some parts that that are uh, up actually. So, I mean, I suppose that's what plays into it. It isn't actually clear sort of what's going on, but I I think that um, th- those community-based policing approaches do seem to generate better outcomes mm. than confrontational because that just seems to seed um, uh, just an ad- like problems with the attitudes between people, problems with the, the interaction... It just doesn't I, seem to... I think to... With, with the number of um, incidents we've had over the past probably five years, if you look at each incident, uh, particularly the um, incident in the um, the mall where the... Uh, <laughs> uh, Garazoulas? Garazoulas. was... Yeah. Um, there There were probably, you know, at least a dozen opportunities for police to intercept him in the, in the preceding um, 24 hours. And... Uh, so police acting proactively is is gets far better results than than responding to incidents where someone is armed with a with a firearm because um, you know if if you look at the states for example all we see there is is that you know, once police get a particular type of weapon then it seems that you know um, people that, that want to do a lot of harm in the community get a, a bigger gun and and then becomes you an know, arms race that's right it becomes an arms race it's, it, it it escalates so I think a lot of it is about Perception, and I think it, unfortunately at the moment a lot of the perception of safety around, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Victoria is a, is around this ongoing fear and concern that that some people have, and I think a lot of it is driven by the media that that there are lots and lots of people out there that want to do lots and lots of damage, but I don't think that's the case. I, I think that that's just purely a perception thing driven by the media. We're speaking with uh, Greg Denham from Law Enforcement Action Partnership, and we're going to uh, dive into some of the policing issues, with, uh, especially with festivals and drug policy uh, in Victoria shortly. Right now, uh, from Melbourne, Loeb with uh, subterrestrial... Sub... Yeah. <laughs> 3CR.
globe with subterrestrial. And if you want to get your hands on it, uh, bandcamp.com and uh, either look up the label Shanti Planti, uh, S-H-A-N-T-I-P-L-A-N-T-I, and you can find Loeb there and get that song for a buck. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Uh, hey, if you're interested in the psychedelic renaissance, make sure you stay in touch with the Australian Conversation. Uh, check out the Entheogenesis Australis YouTube channel uh, with full talks available from uh, nearly 20 years of psychedelic symposia conferences and uh, other events around Melbourne and regional Victoria. YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash entheotv. And you can also sign up for their mailing list uh, at their website. And they just had a, uh, a, a double screen screening of films on Thursday night at the State Library of Victoria. Um, it was the Australian premiere of Journeys to the Edge of Consciousness, a story about Aldous, Huck, uh, Aldous Huxley, uh, Timothy Leary, and um, and uh, uh, the guy with the, who did the books. Uh, the mm, Graham Hancock? No, 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 no. Back Alan further. Watts? No, back further. Uh, Alan, did I already say Alan Watts? No. Anyway, didn't. three of them. It was talking about... It was it, an animated look... Uh, at their first trip that influenced them, uh, and it was quite a good, quite a good film. So um, when it gets more available, we'll share that link with you. Um, sitting across from me, Ash Blackwell, and also Greg Denham from Law Enforcement Action Partnership, and we want to talk a little bit about um, some of the policing uh, things that have been going on uh, this year. And maybe we can start with um, just this little bit from uh, uh, this is from uh, New uh, sorry from the Deputy Police Commissioner Rick Nugent. Um, and he was on Sky News. We increase data sharing at these events between all agencies, actually to then better understand the environment and the risks, but also then how to mitigate those risks. So the alert um, situation or op option has been raised in recent times, and that's something we'll work through today and consider. The challenge with testing of drugs is that we know drugs are dangerous. All drugs are dangerous. Professor Diana Egerton-Warburton claims alcohol is a bigger issue at festivals. There is not going to be one answer and certainly pill testing is not the answer. Back of house testing uh, of drugs um, and looking for dangerous substance and alerting people uh, is a really good idea. Nine out of ten emergency clinicians had experienced alcohol-related violence in the last year. That, that's everybody. So that clip uh, followed a, uh, a all-day uh, uh, policy conference that happened in the city uh, organised by Victoria Police a few weeks ago uh, with a lot of stakeholders from uh, festival organisations and that was Rick Nugent saying um, that he doesn't, um, well I mean it's the same line that we've heard over and over, he doesn't uh, approve of uh, drug testing because drugs are all dangerous and that's what we've been hearing. So I'm just um, just just wondering how you're feeling about this um, fairly repetitive rhetoric that we're hearing on these issues, uh, and and I don't know maybe some insight into why this this broken record effect seems to happen on policy issues. Well, well, it um, basically um, is giving the message that you know, well, as as police officers, we don't have to worry about um, supporting or introducing any other measures because all we have to say is that all drugs are dangerous. So therefore. It um you know it, it absolves us from any other um, obligation to to reduce drug related harm. So you know um so it's you know 
we don't have any responsibility here. We can just step away from this. And, uh, you know, if you make that choice, then that's your responsibility. You know, we saw this in Chapel Street a couple of years ago when there was, you know, I think three deaths and police knew that there was a drug going around which was causing significant harms and it caused the three people. And when they were challenged on that, and I know a number of licensees, um, hotel licensees, venue licensees challenged police on that. They said, well, you know, all we are, all we've ever said is that drugs are dangerous. You don't take drugs. If you do, you know, you're going to get hurt. Don't do it. So therefore, we have no other responsibilities. Which I think is just, as far as um, policing is concerned, and, and as you know, I've spent a lot of time in policing. I, I started policing a long time ago. One of the, one of the, I guess, the aims and objectives of policing is to ensure that there's a safe community and how police can can not. Um, you know, implement strategies which reduce risk and reduce harm and um, enable people to make safer choices, um, given that they do have a focus or should have a focus on reducing um, harm and safety. I think, you know, it just, it just to me, it just, um, you know, um, smacks of uh, negligence, quite frankly. I think it's extremely um, negligent for them to turn around and say, well, we don't have any other obligation to, to the public. We know that it's actually drug prohibition that causes harms, not not the drugs. Drugs are risky. All drugs are risky, you know, but they're more risky. Illicit drugs are more risky because they have been made illicit. If you look at the research that's going on with a range of um, substances which are currently illicit, whether it's ketamine, MDMA, cannabis, um, you know, psychedelic mushrooms, um, you know, they, they all have beneficial use and they can all be used you know, relatively safely, you know, um, a little bit of risk, but they can, the, the harms can be reduced through regulation, through control, through analysis. Um, so, you know, I think for police to turn and say, no, um, all drugs are dangerous, don't do them, I think is really, is a, is a cop-out. Well, especially since there's research now um, from uh, people like uh, Peter Malins at uh, RMIT, who are trying to quantify now the negative effects of not drug policy, but the way that it's enforced of how we have to act and how policing agencies have to act uh, under prohibition or decide to act under prohibition. So we're starting to see, and I think I've even seen, um, uh, I'm, I'm remembering now, and I can't remember exactly what it was. It was something I read a while ago, but um, some uh, economists trying to uh, work out the, the financial cost of on or the financial toll on people from prohibition directly, not from uh, any drug problem. And it's significant. Um, mm. So the research is there. <laughs> yeah. So I think this, the, the, the example that you highlighted, that comes down to information sharing. So, you know, if you look at the history of heroin prohibition in Australia in particular, it was used in the medical fraternity right up until I think it was 1953. And then the responsibility for how to manage it shifted from health to police. Now, that example that you raised of um, the, the drug in question was 25C Enbome, uh, dangerous synthetic cathinone. And the police knew that. Now, the, the question I have there is, where's that relationship with other services that are responsible for safety in the community? Because, you know, I, I know that on the ground, I've got friends that are paramedics where uh, we're going to get Danny Hill, the secretary from the ambulance union on the show next year. But they don't need to take responsibility for managing it. They just need to share information so that other people who have a shared responsibility for that, people in the harm reduction or health community, can then use that information. Yeah, look, there's, there's that aspect of it, which I, I agree totally, Ash. Um, but there's also the other aspect, which is really more concerning for me, and that's the way in which police manipulate, coerce and um, increase risk to people 
through their enforcement practices. Mm. Now, we're seeing this more and more through through public scrutiny. We saw recently where in New South Wales uh, a dog handler was physically physically pushing his dog down to sit next to a couple who um, they had identified who they didn't want, obviously, in the venue and were asked to leave. And and we see this time and time again. We saw it recently at a, at a, a music event, a country music event, where the... Um, where the patrons were asked to leave early through police um, sending out a, an alert that there was um, that there was going to be a fire and and funneling everybody into a um, you know a drug testing alcohol testing um, roadside testing program so there's that information sharing aspect of it which um, I think is is um, it should be mandatory. We we should we should have a mandatory testing system where police they have all the information they have they have this data but they don't share it. But there should should also be, um, you know, far greater scrutiny, far greater monitoring of police enforcing the law. We're seeing it in Victoria. We mentioned Peter before. We've we've seen numerous times when around nightclubs and other and other situations where police will say that a dog has identified a particular person that may have a drug on them, but they don't. They just don't like that person. And, I'm, mm. and I think this is the same with music festivals. My gut feeling is is that police actually just don't like the people that attend those events and they want to get rid of them. It does sort of um, seem like that, and that's where this sort of culture war discussion comes up. But just going back, because we're talking about this, but um, in, that, in that clip that I just uh, played, that was Rick Nugent saying that he wants to see that cooperation and data sharing, and that was also uh, what this discussion was at this all-day uh, forum event, which um, I was at and, and uh, heard a lot of the conversations uh, that were going on there. But then just a few weeks later at Wild Horses, this uh, festival up in Lake Mountain, this is the one that you were just talking about, where they uh, um, essentially, it sounds like, um, uh, they issued a, a fake evacuation yep. warning. There's a massive disconnect between what police say and what police do. And that, and that clearly is still coming through, even with the Royal Commission mm. uh, into Nicola Gobbo, that, you know, police will, will say a lot of things to keep people happy and say they are doing a lot of things which sound great, but in reality, things are very, very different on the ground. And the, the difficulty is, of course, is that in, in some areas, things actually go reasonably well. You know, you do have some supportive police and things aren't well, going too bad. But in another place, it's the exact opposite where mm. the police are almost, it's like they've got a personal vendetta against a particular, um, whether it's an event or an agency or a group of people. And there's no there's no consistency or continuity um, in, in their approach. Mm. And I think, well, I, I, like so much of it must be public relations because you saw in the lead up to the Strawberry Fields Festival, police were, you know, kind of gung-ho about how hardcore they were going to go on that festival. They're like, we're going to have drones and we're going to be monitoring this and we're going to be so hardcore. But I think it was my maybe fifth Strawberry Fields and it was the lightest touch and most collaborative um, kind of mm. event for the police. Like, they, they they didn't seem to do anything particularly problematic mm. from, you know, I haven't heard of anything, even some of the strip search stuff that's happened in previous years. Now, they mm. did still have a small sniffer dog operation. It was more low-key than in previous years. And, uh, you know, I, things could have happened that I'm not aware of, but I certainly haven't heard of those strip searches being particularly egregious like mm. some of them have been in previous mm. years police rely heavily on this notion of um, sending out a strong message and a high probability of the fact that you may be caught well the reality is that you probably won't but they rely heavily on um, sending that that strong message out there that there's a 
there's a high probability that you will be caught with drugs. Um, and in most in most situations, um, that's not necessarily going to be the case. In fact, nearly nearly you know 99% of the time, um, people aren't going to be caught caught with their drugs. But they need to send that consistent message out there because it it it's also an opportunity for them in that sort of low hanging fruit, that sort of very visible sort of um, situation, environment, setting, that they can and do send that message out there. And I think it's the same with drug testing of, of people in terms of um, driving. Mm. You know, I, I think the whole notion of drug testing people for driving when they're not impaired is, is you know, it, it's just completely wrong. It, it, it's just a huge net widening exercise. But police would justify that by saying, well, what we're doing is we're, we're catching catching all these people. So it's our opportunity to send a strong message mm. to the rest of the community that, you know, drugs are bad. And that's that reinforces that message, which, you know, they, they, they rely on heavily because they see demand-side policing, the demand, reducing the demand, as, as one of their, their, their core, um, I don't know, it, it's something they protect and, and they really do um, in, uh, ensure that they can protect that because they see that as one of the, I guess the core activities that they see is beneficial to them. I, I think with the drug testing in particular, because I've read a lot of the policy documents, mm. uh, like the national kind of framework for drug mm. driving, and it's all grounded in this academic theory of deterrence theory. Yeah. Now, there's a few things that, you know, they say are required for deterrence theory to work. Uh, uh, um, a punishment has to be seen as just, it has to be swift, and it has to be, uh, mm. like, appropriate. Um, and so I think that, for, for police, they kind of get validated and reinforced by, um, I would say, some naive academics and policymakers. Now, there's very good reasons why deterrence theory works for alcohol because um, you get caught, you know you've done the wrong thing. It's a reasonable law. 98% of the community agree that it's a reasonable law and so you have cultural policing of that in addition to police policing. And that, that's that kind of how to happen as yeah, well. Yeah. That took decades to, to filter mm. through. But, but I, I don't think it could ever happen with well. drug driving because the, the laws are widely perceived as unjust by anyone you know who uses drugs, who's familiar with the testing regime and a lot of people associated with those people all view it as unjust. And mm. so you're no, never going to have the cultural policing. And so then what you have is avoidance and... Um, substance substitution people might use a different substance that they don't test for which doesn't necessarily make the road safer just on the on the role of um uh demand reduction which is uh, or sorry supply reduction which is where the uh the police put a lot of their uh effort uh we also tend to have this uh uh, amazing phenomena of uh ex-police officers uh, well like yourself or (laughs) not not necessarily just just yourself but a lot of uh, ex-police officers or ex-ministers um who will come out and then speak against the policy that they supported when they're in the position of power um, once they're not in that position of power anymore. Um, but uh, former Federal Police Commissioner Mick Palmer was speaking at the Drug Policy Australia event at uh, Melbourne Town Hall earlier this year and said this... My own view is that our focus is wrong. We, st- we need to keep our focus on organised drug trafficking in the high end of the marketplace where the damage is most severe and, the, and the, where the danger is most severe and the damage to the people we arrest and apprehend and investigate is, is uh, the least we can possibly achieve move our focus away from use and possession cases, change the focus of what we do. Uh, and if we have a zero tolerance in terms of law enforcement, it ought to be a zero tolerance to the loss, unavoidable loss of human lives through overdoses and the avoidable serious inj- injury and hospitalisation. And no other zero, zero tolerance should matter. Otherwise, it's a bit like being more concerned about the numbers of cars on the road 
than you are about the numbers of fatalities. So I thought it was interesting what Mick's saying, but there's still this focus on supply reduction. And this is one of the things that happens in this uh, uh, drug drug law reform debate. You get people eventually agreeing, okay, well, maybe drugs uh, aren't so bad. Um, so we'll just crack down on all the traffickers and all the suppliers, the manufacturers. And um, when that starts to happen, I go, well, you haven't really got the point of it. It's that... Um, it's that it's there's not just one sort of evil um, person in this chain. There's not some some person. I mean, look, you'll have evil people amongst the market as there's bad people in any market. But it, there's there's not this sort of um, this pusher, this idea of the drug pusher out there capturing people's souls with the uh, drugs that you know uh, control them and turn them into zombies. But this is still the kind of picture that gets projected um, when we're not talking about alternatives to supply reduction because maybe that's not working. I mean, that's what all the research shows as well, that supply reduction doesn't actually reduce the demand and doesn't actually uh, create better outcomes in the market. So, I mean, what, what are we wasting so much money on it for? Well, look, it's a good point. And, uh, you know, as we know, there there are um, many, many people out there who are involved in the supply of, um, of illicit substances who, you know, do do supply and, and do make money, but you know they are part of you know um, you know the supply chain, which for many people who use illicit drugs, um, without those people, you know that there there would be even worse case scenarios. So um, you know, and I think the whole kind of notion of the the trafficker, the the terminology and the um, the language around that notion is is is, is it's almost like you know it, it's it's um, the the uh, quintessential s you know evil sort of person that preys on you know the the um, the vulnerable individuals who are you know um, victims of you know these these, these feels horrible like people that you know it's almost like a horror yeah it's like, like a character out of a grim a nursery tale or something exactly <laughs> yeah. yes yes That's... yes so. So there was some research out of um, Queensland University of Technology. I think it was last year, Professor John Scott published in the International Journal of Drug Policy, and it essentially picked apart exactly who is a drug dealer in Australia. And the predominant trend, which wouldn't be surprising to any of us and probably many of our listeners, is that there's social drug supply is the norm. So that would be, you know, your mate kind of hooks you up, says, oh, yeah, I've got a bit of extra of this thing, I'll get a bit extra for you or people that um, maybe use frequently and just supply a few of their friends to pay for their own. And that's mostly what most people who use drugs, not that's, and who that's who their drug dealer is. It's just somebody that they know. Not a that's shady a guy on the corner in a trench coat, opening his trench coat mm. flaps with, hey, kid, you want some of these needles? Like, it's not what's going on. Um, hey, we've got to um, get Wendy on the line uh, shortly. Wendy Allison from Know Your Stuff NZ. Um, but we might have a bit of a, uh, a song first. Uh, this is uh, Mr. Savona uh, with... Uh, Carnival and Sopiu and Opiu a remix on In Psychedelia on 3CR 855 AM 3CR Digital 3CR.org.au Welcome to Havana Town. 
Mr. Savona Carnival, it's an OPU remix on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR digital, 3cr.org.au. It's in Psychedelia. And um, on the line now uh, is Wendy Allison, Managing Director of Know Your Stuff uh, New Zealand. Um, Wendy, welcome. Yeah, it, yep, it's working. Hey, <laughs> it's always good when we can uh, get get these things working uh, immediately. So, um, uh, well, uh, it's festival season has begun, so you guys are uh, on the ground. Let's just get a basic rundown. What's been going on over uh, over the uh, over the ocean? It's been quite a year in New Zealand. You may have heard there's been a lot of noise from the government. Since early this year, the Minister of Police said very publicly that he would like to see drug checking at every major festival. A um, lot of noise, no action. Mm. <laughs> it's been, there's a coalition government here and one of the minor parties in the coalition is currently blocking the law change that would make that possible. And they have been claiming they would like to see the evidence. Um, they seem to have ignored the massive pile of evidence that already exists, including five years of our own data, and have said, we want to see the evidence. So last week, the government announced that they are funding research, which is essentially an independent evaluation of drug checking in New Zealand which is going to mostly look into the demand for drug checking, how festival organisers feel about it, and whether the people who have been using the services are changing their approach to drugs. So it will be interesting to see what the outcome of that will be and whether the coalition partners will actually pay any attention to it. Uh, we just have some audio here from um, New Zealand First MP Jenny Marcroft. Uh, she was speaking with Radio New Zealand uh, recently about this, uh, about what you've just been talking about. So I'll just play this uh, this little uh, piece of audio and make sure that you can hear it as well. Why are you in favour of drug testing at festivals? Well, I'm actually in favour of the remit, which was put up by Young New Zealand First, which is to uh, for us 
for the caucus, for the party to reconsider our position. And I think we needed to hear from the voice of Young New Zealand first. And so that was one of the reasons why I voted for uh, that remit to go through. Uh, Secondly, I think we, um, as a mother, personally, um, even though I believe I've prepared my daughter, who's 18, she'll be off to university next year, I believe I've done the best I can, and the school has done the best they can to prepare her for going out into the world. There are still going to be forces on her where she may then not make the best choices. As a mother, I want to know that there is another safety net if that happens. And if that means somehow she is stopped at the final point of um, maybe taking drugs, and I think many other mothers and fathers would feel the same as well, that there is that extra safety net there. So for that reason, I would like us to, um, as a party, re-engage with our position and find, as um, Tracy Martin has put forward yesterday, that actually we find a middle way forward um, between the line of we must send a very strong, clear message that we don't want our young people taking drugs and then finding that balance between that and um, how do we ensure we have a safety net for our children. So was this the uh, New Zealand First, were they the party that were um, holding back? Uh, What's the story there? Indeed, it is New Zealand First who have been blocking it and at their party conference, the Young Branch of New Zealand first put forward this notion that the party should reconsider and it was voted that they would reconsider. There are some people in the party who are very strongly against drug checking and there are some who are very strongly in favour and they reached an impasse essentially. They were unable to decide whether they would support it or not. And so in grand politician style, they went, we'd like to see more evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we sent them a whole bunch of evidence, but that was not acknowledged. And this evaluation that the government is funding, the intention of this is to provide the evidence that New Zealand First is seeking based in New Zealand from New Zealanders, because this is a party that is very populist with regards to it being about New Zealand. So if none of the massive stack of evidence that already exists is going to change their mind, then maybe this will. This is this is kind of the approach that is being taken. So we're supporting this. We are working very closely with the researchers, providing them with data and also networking to help them actually be able to speak to people. Because as you can imagine, not everyone wants to talk about their drug use to a random stranger. So we're supporting it, helping it happen, and there should be an outcome sometime in around about April next year. And so I, I guess, does this mean that maybe New Zealand First just doesn't trust your evidence that you've provided and want an independent person to evaluate it so that they can trust I it more? Think that we have been very, very clear that we are not objective that we would like the law change, that we're doing this because we want to save lives and because we know it does save lives. And that is not a position that you can call objective from their perspective. Mm -hmm. They have people within their party who are very much along the lines of, oh, it's condoning drug use and people should be punished for breaking the law up to and including death, Mm. that sort of thing. I have had conversations with one of the MPs that's opposing it in which he has to my face, admitted that there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that the presence of drug checking leads to an increase in drug use and yet is still taking this line publicly. So those are the sort of people that we need to convince and the only way we're going to do that is to do the dance, play the game and 
support this independent research that is probably going to produce the same results we are, but it's independent, so they can't say that it's not objective. In the studio at the moment, we have uh, former police officer and head of law enforcement Ac- action partnership, uh, Greg Denham, uh, as well. Wendy, I just wanted to uh, make sure that you know. <laughs> Greg, Hi, Hi, Wendy. Greg. Um, no, I, actually, that was going to be my point. You've just actually <laughs> said uh, what I was um, going to raise in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, this sort of narrative we hear from um, conservative um, groups in, in the community, politicians and others, um, church-based, faith-based groups about, you know, condoning and supporting and promoting drug use that, uh, you know, we, um, we, we still seem to get bogged down in this discussion, which, you know, um, quite frankly, you know, you kind of get tired of it after a while because there's no evidence supporting that. But, um, you know, they still seem to raise this um, in defiance of, of a lack of evidence. And it's almost a, a narrative that's a, a continuation of the, the fight we need to fight, the war we need to win. Um, and uh, it kind of doesn't surprise me that over in New Zealand you've got, you know, the same people or similar people saying the same thing because we have it here, here as well. So uh, one of the um, options that uh, now has been put forward in New South Wales where there's been ongoing um, discussions and inquiries about um, drug testing, um, is the proposal to um, introduce amnesty bins uh, <laughs> at um, at events. So yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know whether anybody's actually thrown that up as an idea in New Zealand, but uh, you know, um, you know, we 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 kind of get that default sort of option um thrown at us here that uh oh look you know we won't we won't have drug testing but uh you know uh we we will let people throw their drugs in the bin before they get in so that you know we're near this we know they're safe so (laughs) um is that the sort of uh sort of stuff that you've been hearing over there for a while we have not had that particular suggestion made over here but new zealand has a very different situation and The amnesty bin thing, I believe, is a direct response to the coroner's report finding that heavy-handed policing was one of the driving factors behind the deaths in Australia because of people seeing a snipper dog freaking out and taking their entire stash in one go. So providing an amnesty bin does give those people another option to avoid that situation without doing the thing that's killing them. Whereas in New Zealand, we often don't have searches being conducted by police. They're usually carried out by festival security. And it's very, very clear that the police are not targeting people who use drugs. They're targeting people who sell drugs. So if you use drugs and you're found with a couple of MDMA pills on you by the security at the gate, you will not be arrested. You will lose your stuff, but you won't be arrested. You won't get in trouble. It won't ruin your life. So we don't have that problem. So mm. this has not been suggested in New Zealand. Things are going very, we do very here. differently here. Uh, we do have that problem here because yeah. it's a net widening exercise and uh, quite a few people get caught up in the net and uh, that includes um, many people who, unfortunately, um, you know, as we were discussing before, particularly New South Wales, need, need to have, uh, you know, um, fear, fear, um, you know, uh, well, that's thrown at them, yeah. and uh, and therefore you're going to be subjected to what um, some people have described as potentially, um, you know, uh, a, a, a certainly a, a traumatic event such as being strip searched. So we have a very different approach. I know I read some media during the week from New Zealand, which was really encouraging about what the police were saying over there in terms of drug testing. And I and I would love for some of your police in 
New Zealand to come over here and, and teach uh, the police over here a few things. <laughs> yes, we have been watching what's been happening in Australia for quite a while. What we saw happening in Australia was actually one of the things that made us start Know Your Stuff because we saw what draconian poli policing practices were likely to achieve, which is more harm. So we went in the opposite direction and went, let's, let's do some drug checking. And we didn't ask permission. We just went ahead and did it um, and produced some results. And that's got people talking. And, and now we're in this position where we're finally getting government acknowledgement. This is, this is potentially a legitimate way forward. But the bottom line for us is that this will be our sixth season that we're doing it. The government has made a lot of noise, but not really taken any action. There are things in the pipeline, but they are not guaranteed. So the way that we're proceeding is business as usual. Politicians can decide what they're going to do, and we'll just carry on checking drugs until they catch up with us. And to that end, I do have some great news from New Zealand. Um, we managed to apply for and receive a grant from a charitable trust, and we have bought our first spectrometer that we own for ourselves. Mm. We now have yay! <laughs> we now have access to three spectrometers, which means we will have three teams out over New Year's. That's half mm, as much wow. gain as we were doing last year. Um, increased our capacity considerably, and we're really, really stoked about that. So um, I just want to delve into that a little bit more. We've talked a lot about the policy stuff, but it's been quite a while since we caught up. So how is the service delivery going? How's your team? How's the support? And what kind of things are you finding? Well, <laughs> lots of stuff happening there too. We have we now have 65 people roughly on board. We can field a team at three events in one go. Um, we were actually able on public donations this year to buy enough T-shirts for everybody, which was neat. Nobody had to share. Um, and so we will be continuing business as usual this year. It's very difficult to say at this point in the season how many events we'll be at. But I can say unequivocally that we'll probably increase our sample number considerably. Um, and that part of the reason for that is because we've been trialling static testing clinics outside of festivals and events. So for people who can't afford an event ticket, they can now, it's only a trial. We've been doing it once a month in Wellington City in conjunction with the New Zealand Drug Foundation and we operate out of their offices and we open for a few hours once a month and anybody who wants to can drop in and have a sample or two tested. And what's happened there is we did the sixth trial yesterday. The first trial, three people turned up. Um, yesterday, in four hours, we did 37 tests, which is, with one spectrometer, quite good going because we're, we're having the clients do all the handling and with the harm reduction talk as well. It's, it's a reasonably protracted process. So 37 tests is actually quite a leap from where we started. I think we can call the trial a success, and over the summer we'll review that and decide whether to expand to Auckland next year. Now we have more spectrometers, we can consider that seriously. So that's another exciting development in New Zealand. And what about drug trends? What kind of things are you turning up? Um, more and more MDMA. And mm. I say that as a percentage of the samples were brought rather than an actual quantity. So it seems the other drugs are 
less common. People want to test MDMA, and I don't know whether that's a factor of there being more MDMA around by comparison to other drugs or simply because people hear about drug checking of MDMA, so they think only MDMA needs to be tested. We, we do get other things, but MDMA is far and away the most popular drug. Um, and at the moment, about 90% of it is MDMA. If it's not MDMA, it's most likely to be a cathinone, about 50% chance of being N-ethylpentylone. The occasional pharmaceutical, we've found some with, um, not sure how you say this, quetiapine. It's an antipsychotic substance, which it could make you feel sick, but it's not going to kill people, which is good to know. Um, so at the moment, our big concerns for the summer are high-dose MDMA pills, which, of course, we've been seeing a lot in the UK, and we've seen them for two years in New Zealand, and the number of those we're seeing as a percentage of samples is increasing. Um, N-ethylpentylone is still around, so we're seeing that fairly regularly. And the third thing that we're really pushing the message on this year is GHB, because we've seen deaths overseas and we've seen hospitalizations in New Zealand. It appears to be making something of a comeback, um, and people don't think it needs to be tested and they don't respect it as a drug. So a lot of people don't understand the body weight relationship and mm. you get situations where a a man will introduce his girlfriend to GHB because it is a drug that people use to enjoy sex and he will give her a dose that he would take but he's nearly twice her size and then she ends up in hospital. And These are the sort of things we need to be talking to people about. Mm. So we're really pushing that message this year is bring in your GHB for testing. There's a lot of GBL in New Zealand and we're hoping that people will so we can have that conversation. It's like, no, don't mix it with alcohol. <laughs> know your dose. Be careful. All the usual stuff that we don't get to say because people are not bringing it into testing. We're just about out of time, Wendy, um, uh, but maybe uh, some, some final uh, positive notes. Um, maybe do you, do you have any, uh, any particularly positive anecdotes that you might like to share uh, with us to finish up today? Well, I can tell you that over the three years that we've been publishing our data publicly, the number of people who are willing to not take or discard a substance that isn't as it's supposed to be has gone from 50% to 62%, and that's been a steady trend over the last three years. We're hoping to see that increase. We'd like to think it's because people are taking on for the harm reduction message, and this year we're, we're aiming for 68%. Yeah. Wendy, thank you very much for joining us on Psychedelia today. Good talking to you. Thank you. And um, while we were on air, I actually missed a call from Deb Lynch, who um, was on the uh, Medical Cannabis Users Association. She's part of the Canon Nanas, and she just wanted to highlight for all of you listeners out there, the Federal Senate Medical Cannabis Inquiry is open for submissions until the 17th of January and looking at all kinds of issues like access, affordability. So if you are a person or know a person who either wants to or does use medical cannabis, then you can make a submission to that one. Uh, thanks very much <coughs> to our special guests, uh, Wendy Allison from Know Your Stuff NZ and Greg Denham from Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Thanks for joining us in the studio for our final broadcast of the year, Greg. Thanks for the invitation. 
and we will be back uh, in 2020. We'll be back in February. Uh, we're taking January off. We've got a lot going on. Uh, we will be uh, hosting a panel at Rainbow Serpent Festival if um, if all goes ahead, as we've seen some footage uh, overnight of um, Rainbow Serpent Festival, of the uh, uh, Ararat Fire Brigade uh, buzzing around the site, trying to put out spot fires, and with the forest uh, behind the site um, in, in flames. Uh, so, you know, we wait and see. The fire is uh, affecting us all. Um, please uh, stay tuned to 3CR. Summer programming uh, is on for the next month. Uh, we've got some Queering the Air uh, up next for you. Um, and enjoy the rest of your Sunday afternoon. Um, find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook. Subscribe to the podcast because there will be a whole bunch more added, uh, not just the 2019 uh, podcast, but I also have 2018 and 17, uh, and they'll be catalogued so you can find the topics that interest you most on our website, npsychedelia.org. Uh, Enjoy your Sunday afternoon. I already said that. See you later. This is Psychedelia. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.